Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right. What's up, Gromies? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm Keisha. Welcome to episode 73. I am moderating solo today, but y'all know the drill. We are going live on YouTube. So if you're logging in over there, be sure to post your questions. I'll also keep an eye out for questions in the chat. Drop them anytime. And if your question gets picked, we'll either have you unmute yourself or I will ask for you. Also, be sure you're following us on all the platforms. We are on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. With that, let's get started. Jason and Seth, how are you guys doing today? Good. Excellent. Y'all sound ready. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Dave Wright submitted this question a, a few weeks ago, and he also sent a follow-up. So let's start with that. Um, he's looking for some tips for resolving or avoiding nitrogen toxicity. We've been dealing with some nitrogen toxicity throughout the multiple stages of growth all of a sudden. Feeding one gallon cocoa pots at 6.0 to 6.2 pH, 2.3 to 3 EC, happening in both HPS and LED rooms. Runoff pH was a bit high at times. Here's what he added. Uh, in addition to that, we're seeing some situations where P1 runoff is 5.5-ish and P2 runoff is, sitting, is hitting 6.5. Any idea why this would be happening? Input uh, pH is 5.8 to 6.1, 2.8 to 3 EC, HPS room. What do you guys think? Let's hit the, the first half of that. Um... And one of the things to kind of keep in mind is uh, in that LED room, you might need to start running a little bit higher ECs, uh, just depending on how that plant's feeding. Obviously, nitrogen uptake is uh, something that's not very well regulated by the plant, as Seth has mentioned a few episodes back. And uh, so if we're getting low on nutrients uh, across the board in there, it's definitely going to be getting some extra nitrogen in relationship to the other nutrients that it's pulling. Um, one of the easiest ways to identify if you're running low on EC is time series data. So looking at, Hey, as our water contents decrease, um, you know, after our feeds, does our EC, uh, start to rise? If it starts to drop, that means the plant is eating nutrients faster than the salts to the nutrients are concentrating in that substrate. Um, so that might be one thing to definitely take a look at specifically for the LED room, uh, for the HPS room, obviously going in at say 6.0 to 6.2 for the pH, um, you know, if you're cocoa, one gallon bags, I mean, that's exactly where you want to be. So that should be helping regulate some of the nitrogen uptake. Obviously, lower pHs would um, make nitrogen solubility a little bit higher. Seth, what do you think for those HPS uh, rooms? Well, I mean... Big thing that keys me in is kind of the pH that you're feeding in at, and then looking at what kind of media you have and possible amendment it, amendments it has. If we're above a 6.0 generally in the root zone, we're going to see really unrestricted nitrogen uptake. Actually, that's part of why we want to be down below a 6.0. If we look at that plant nutrient availability, we're actually able to restrict nitrogen a little bit by lowering that pH. Um, and then, as Jason said, you know, low EC conditions. So. Building up that osmotic pressure allows us to kind of regulate a little bit what the plant's bringing in. So if it's harder for the plant to pick up pretty much anything, then obviously nitrogen is going to be difficult too. And then, uh, you know, for your particular situation, um, you know, we talk about it here a lot. Sometimes being able to run a nutrient program that allows you to pull back on the nitrogen a little bit uh, can be beneficial, but it's really hard to correlate a lot of these things without a, a root zone EC measurement. So regardless of your feed EC, we always want to see what EC we're seeing in the root zone. Just as Jason said, if our baseline's low and then it's eating everything we're putting in, that's a different situation in relation to our pH than if we have a solid baseline built up and we're actually seeing that EC rise as the water dries out and we're watching that osmotic pressure build. So EC, pH, and then um, make sure you're watering adequately and resetting that nutrient balance if you have something like that going on, you know? 
Wonderful. Thank you guys for that. And Dave Ray, good luck out there. Thanks for your patience. We were a little bit behind. We've had so many great questions. So appreciate your follow-up on that. Keep us posted. All right. Mikey just posted a question here in the chat. Mikey, I'm going to read it. And if you want to unmute yourself and add to it, please feel free. Uh, he's looking for ideal flower temps for LED rooms. At what VPD and at what length of time can we cause plant stress? So for LEDs, obviously we've got a little bit lower um, room to room temp to radiation ratio. And basically what's going on there is since LEDs are going to have less far red, uh, less of the photons are causing heat rise in the surface of those leaves. And so what usually we're looking at is anywhere from 80 degrees to 84 degrees for daytime temps starting off in flower. Um, obviously as we progress through flower, we like to start to induce a nighttime differential. Yeah, it might even definitely lower your daytime temps just a little bit. Um, obviously that night day offset, you know, typically for the first third of the cycle. Uh, and this is, you know, for a very generic strain, just start somewhere with this. And the more data you can collect on the strain and how, uh, how much you need to do these temperature offsets is kind of, uh, kind of the best way to go about growing a strain the best, but middle of the road. So first, say third of the cycle, um, you know, zero to five degree temperature differential, uh, for the second, third, usually, you know, around the five degree temperature differential. And for the last third up to about uh, 10 degrees night day differential. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the the challenges with switching over to LED is a lot of the information out there was built out around growing under HPSs, which usually accounts for that leaf temp offset that, you know, elevated leaf temp compared to the ambient air around it. And with LEDs, we have the exact opposite. And when we're looking at LEDs, you know, there's a, a variety of products out in the market. And one of the easiest ways to really figure out what's going on in your room. And I mean, airflow comes into this too. We've got a lot of airflow, LEDs, not a lot of radiant heat. We typically have to run the rooms a fair bit warmer, but every grower's best bet is actually going and getting a laser thermometer, or if you're really fancy, get a FLIR camera so you can really get some cool averages, but go see what your leaf temps are doing. And what we're targeting there is, you know, that 0.6 to 0.9 VPD through gen, even raising that up to a 1.0 towards the end of week three, and then, you know, going into that 1.2 to 1.4 range. And really at the end of the day, we're targeting that leaf surface VPD. Um, we just have to work with values that we can actually easily measure every day. Um, and as far as your question is how long, I mean, the longer you're out of a VPD range, the more your plant's going to adapt to it, right? But when it adapts to that not optimal uh, VPD range, we're not going to see as good a production either. So, you know, when we look at those VPD ranges, the smaller you can keep that dead band and the narrower range you can keep your plants in day and night. So if we're saying 0.6 to 0.9, that's day and night. If we're saying 1.2 to 1.4, that's also day and night. So keeping it in that range both times is, you know, crucial to achieving like max transpiration, which is what we're looking for, maximum productivity. Anytime you go outside of that dead band, that plant has to adapt to the conditions outside of it, whether it's low humidity or high humidity. And what the end result is loss of production time. So, I mean, there is no minimum or maximum time amount of time you can be out of VPD range. Um, but you're, potentially leaving production on the table, the more time you spend out of it. Yeah. just kind of, I mean, talked about some, um, advanced ways to know what the ideal conditions are. Yeah, Seth mentioned, uh, thermal cameras. They're my absolute favorite way to start looking at, uh, leaf surface temperatures. Obviously I've put some pictures up here. Uh, I've done a, a couple of, um, tutorials on, on YouTube on how important they can be. And simply just because, you know, if, I have a decent thermal camera. I can get it, you know, a few thousand samples in one picture at an instant time. Uh, I can get kind of a scan across the whole canopy as, as far as how much sampling I'm I'm catching. And you know, in different parts of the plant, you know, you're going to see five to ten degree temperature difference. Uh, you know, if I accidentally use my laser thermometer and I hit a cola instead of a leaf, uh, things going to be way hotter than a leaf, and it's going to give me give me a bad reading to make adjustments off of the absolute sure way to get an idea of how you've optimized your environment is by looking at stomatal conductance. And so the stomatal conductance, uh, we're always shooting for the highest stomatal conductance that we can get at a given CO2 level. And, uh, if you want to, you know, make slight incremental changes into your environment, if you have the ability to take stomatal samples, then 
uh, it's going to give you an idea whether you've improved the rate that plant can grow at or gone the wrong way. And uh, there's always going to be thresholds, right? And so if we go up too high in temperature, um, that plant's stomates are going to start to close up a little bit. And our transpiration rates are going to go down and vice versa. If we decrease the temperature and humidity outside of the ideal range, those stomates are going to close up a little bit and, uh, we're going to have just slightly less growth, uh, depending on how far out of range that we're shooting for. Um, and, you know, Seth did bring up day and, and night VPDs. Uh, you know, we're always stressing that daytime VPDs are uh, much more important than daytime or nighttime, excuse me, VPDs. Um, nighttime VPDs are important because uh, we're trying to, one, keep that plant in a stable environment, two, uh, avoid susceptibility for molds and mildews to grow. Um, but really what's happening is with uh, without the photo period, without the lights on, the uh, plant is transpiring significantly less and so those vpd um you know that vpd range at night is going to be much wider because it's not affecting uh, the rate of plant growth nearly as much as that vpd range during photo period on awesome y'all thank you for that answer mikey great question thank you for posting that um all right we're gonna keep it moving we got a lot going on on youtube first of all some shout outs poppy grows wrote in just want to say love the chat watched a few older older bids and just helped me so much with what i got going on right now you guys are amazing love the show we appreciate you poppy thank you um true exotic and clone wrote in love you guys thanks so much for all your help i've learned so much from listening on car rides that's right we're amazing to take on a road trip so Thank you, True Exotic and Clone. All right, Jay dropped a question here. They want to know, in regards to far red supplementation towards the end of the flowering phase, how would you suggest adding the far red continuous staggered set times within 12-12, et cetera? Also, at what week in flower? What advice do you guys have for Jay? So, I mean, let's kind of just start off by breaking down the science of far red and how it affects the plant. Um, so usually far red, we're looking at, you know, in the range of 700 nanometers plus, um, it's, I think specifically it's, you know, defined as a slightly different range than that, but sure. Uh, for intensive purposes in this conversation, we're going to say, you know, 700 or 740 plus nanometers of, um, of light wavelength. And uh, basically what's happening is in those, those higher wavelengths, um, higher frequency wavelengths, uh, that's where your chlorophyll B is reacting to the, the photons. And so the way the plant is is processing that is going to be slightly different than full spectrum. Um, obviously, you know, as we mentioned the other week, it's really about the the levels of each uh, of each type of, of light wavelength that's coming through rather than the balance of those. And so when we think about supplementing with far red, really what we're doing is, is starting to, you know, tell that plant, Hey, let's balance you to a even more generative, um, type of hormone. And so what that's going to be doing is giving this plant a, a reproductive response saying, Hey, let's make as much reproductive growth as we possibly can. Um, you know, as from the millions of years of this plant growing, it's adapted to, uh, more far reds, uh, during fall time as the, um, apex, uh, angle of the, the sun. That an apex angle? No. Um, it's, the angle uh, that the rays are going through the atmosphere. They're exactly. going through they, more atmosphere. Got to go through more atmosphere. And, and so that those, uh, those far reds are typically going to start to be more intense towards fall. And then that plant's been adapted to knowing that in the fall time, it needs to be as reproductive as possible. That's the evolution of the plant. Uh, if it can produce those, um, those types of plant parts before everything freezes out or it runs out of growing season, it's more likely to reproduce and evolve into that. So, um, when exactly is going to be definitely strain dependent, uh, usually when the, when the plant starts ripening, you know, if we're looking at generally about two weeks before harvest is what we're looking at with most plants. And then there's always going to be some of those oddball genetics that aren't going to respond the same way other plants do for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the important things to remember about that also is, you know, when we're looking at plant maturity, we've got biosynthetic pathways for different cannabinoids and terpenes. So that's also another part of it's not it's not just chlorophyll. It's not just the way the plants are responding, but we're also uh, causing degradation of different molecules that lead to a different final expression. As far as supplementing that goes, you've got a few different options. You got your classic mixed light HPS and then, you know, some of the newer LEDs have far red built into them. Uh, there's also far red supplementation in the form of LED light bars. Um, in terms of 
how much of your total light load you need in far red. I wish I had numbers for you. And as far as staggering it on, um, I haven't seen any definitive evidence one way or another, whether actually staggering it in and, you know, increasing amounts is going to help that much. Or if just starting to make sure you've got that uh, range in, included in your light spectrum is actually going to be what gets you there. Yeah. And I, I think a really important thing to think about here as well is uh, pretty much any light source that you have, unless you're building your own LEDs um, from diodes are going to have some amount of you know full spectrum. Uh, you know, even LEDs are going to be containing some amount of far red typically uh, from every manufacturer that I've seen. And in order to get the best plant growth, there has to be some amount of balance in all of this. So even when we're saying, hey, go generative stacking or when we're going vegetative bulking, there's still some aspects uh, that are keeping that plant balanced for the most amount of growth as possible. Obviously, um, I guess we'll take an anecdote right now from my experiences uh, at my, my place this year is uh, I've got some tomatoes outside and I've got some tomatoes inside and my tomatoes outside are probably as, as generative as I, I could grow a plant simply because I don't have my greenhouse built up yet. And they're going through uh, nights at usually 40 degrees, um, 40 to 45 degrees and daytime temps in the 90 to 100 degrees. Um, so obviously VPDs all over the place. And then my indoor plants are at uh, usually around 70 to 75 degrees all the time. And the plant morphology is very cool to look at uh, next to each other. My tomatoes inside are probably six feet tall, yet I don't have nearly the, the bud onset and the, they're not even close to, to turning uh, red yet. Uh, whereas outside, I'm looking at plants that are two and a half feet tall and they're blowing up with fruit, but they're going to they're gonna run out of capacity to make more fruit simply because of the lack of plant infrastructure. All right. You heard it, Jay. Good luck out there. Keep us posted on what you're doing. All right. We got one more question here. We did not plant this question. I welcome it, though. Holy Nodes wants to know what crop steering software we recommend. So I guess that's an opportunity for us to talk about why Arroyo is such a great crop steering software. Go for it. I mean, to start out with, just the sensor quality. You know, if you're not getting good data streaming into the software, you're trying to process it with, you're not going to get very repeatable results. You know, accuracy is one thing. Precision is another. And if you don't have both, you're going to be chasing your tail one way or both ways. Um, and then as far as Arroyo itself goes, you know, I think Jason, you can probably speak to this from the outset. It was designed with cannabis cultivators in mind for the cannabis cultivation process, which I think is part of what differentiates it. If you want to give them some specifics. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so, uh, you know, a lot of it came from my day-to-day -day struggles as a cultivator and just how many different systems that I had to use in order to get the information I needed. So that's why we're looking at target ranges and alerts built right into the system. We're looking at things like uh, ability to tag the chart with notes, tasks, IPM events, uh, pictures, uh, just to really attribute things more than the data because uh, the data itself doesn't explain well, what's happening. It just explains the you know raw output of the parameters in a room or in a root zone. And so kind of, kind of trying to equip growers with the tool set all in one interface. Um, I was going to say the next best thing about uh, using Arroyo as a crop steering platform is the advice that you get from us is directly built off of our experience in there. Um, obviously, you're uh, by using Arroyo, you're supporting the educational resources that uh, that Seth and I are producing here right now, and so um, you know it's it's going to be directly paired with the the values that we're talking about. Um, uh, like you said, the sensor quality allows us to have uh, fairly accurate calibrations built in through the software and um, the advice that we give directly ref reflects those parameters. Yeah. And I, I think one thing too, is we're, we're very agnostic when it comes to inputs. Uh, we we're not tied to specific nutrient brands, light brands, uh, fan brands, name, name a product in a grow and we're, we're not specifically tied to it. So that's another part of it. We can look, we, we try to step back and teach people how to look at a holistic view and go, okay, it's not just your sensors. It's not just your fertilizer. It's not just this. It's a, it's a holistic view. And I think that's one thing that um, isn't always prevalent in quite, quite a few industries, depending on who's trying to get the product out there, right? Like our interest is in 
helping growers cultivate data and make better choices based on that data, not necessarily trying to sell them on any other products, not trying to tell them that any one thing is going to be the key, but more promote, uh, I'll use this word carefully, sustainable growing and not in the terms of uh, we're the most environmentally friendly, but what's a way that you can operate that's going to be uh, streamlined, profitable, and repeatable because you've quantified your operation and you have numbers and goals to hit now. It's a, you know, it's a balanced approach that we take as well, because, um, you know, we kind of bring experience and science together into the recommendations that we make. It's, um, you know, not based of, uh, information out of a laboratory and it's, you know, not based off of, uh, the grow in my basement from the seventies. It's, um, it's just based on how do we help the, the tens of thousands of users that we have become more successful and how do we get more of those users as successful as they possibly can be. And that comes with training. It comes with pairing up uh, what, what does uh, agriculture biology suggest is, is the right way to go. Uh, what do these results show? Um, and they don't always match up. So it, it takes kind of, kind of a careful mitigation of, of outcomes. Yeah. And I think one of the cool parts about it is, you know, when you decide to invest in Arroyo, you're investing in uh, some of the same sensing technology that universities across the world, various research institutions are using to gather their own substrate, climate data, soil, soil data. So you're, you're really getting access to data that's cutting edge, you know, in a lot of other ways, you know, if we look at uh, pH meters, for instance, okay, if you don't want to go spend over $2,000 on a really nice benchtop pH meter, you're essentially buying an inferior product that's not going to give you quite as accurate and precise results, or at least not as easily. With Arroyo, you're skipping kind of the subpar, older tech, or, you know, essentially cheaper options. And we found a way to bring you this technology at a price that's like pretty, pretty affordable, I feel like, in terms of industry standards when it comes to things like substrate sensing. It's, you know, it's at a price that you can really start to sample what your production looks like. Um, you know, the, so the products that, um, were widely available before Roya came out were in that say 1500 to $3,000 per substrate sensor. And, uh, I've worked with, uh, many, many of growers that, uh, ran into challenges where they just couldn't analyze the, um, how much their drippers were clogged across the room because they had uh, one plant with the sensor in it and, you know, 999 without sensors in them. Uh, so that their ability to analyze uniformity. Uh, really was not good. Fantastic. Thank you guys for that overview. And Holy Nodes and anybody else out there who's interested in just learning more about what Arroyo can do, head over to arroyo.io, click book a demo. One of our professionals will talk you through it. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for that. We're going to get right back to the questions that we have here. We have a lot from previous weeks that we haven't even gotten to, so I'm going to just get right into it. Mike wrote in recently, hey guys, I've loved the videos recently. I grow in ProMix HP, and I was wondering if you have any tips on dry back in the media. I haven't found much online. Figured you guys might be the ones to ask. And feed strength in ProMix, pretty much everything. It works great for me, but I'd love to be able to dial it in even more. Got any advice for Mike? So when we're talking about ProMix, um, you know, look at what, what your uh, perlite ratio is in that mix. Um, I would highly recommend doing a field capacity test and seeing where you're at compared to the volume of your substrate. And other than that, I mean, ProMix is kind of, uh, that was the baseline before cocoa really hit the market. And also the number of growers exploded to the point where uh, we're, you know, starting to become taxing on uh, peat bogs. It's not very environmental to strip mine peat bogs to grow cannabis. So that's partially where uh, cocoa came from. Otherwise, peat moss and cocoa mixes have pretty much all the same soilless characteristics that we're looking for. So I'll just sum it up real quick. As long as you're getting a 10 to 15% dryback, you're in a fairly healthy size media. Obviously, pushing a little farther can be desired from time to time, all the way up to a 25% or so dryback. And then otherwise, you know, as we've talked about before, just apply your generative, your vegetative, and your generative irrigation strategies to get through the crop. Yeah. And on top of that, um, that field capacity test, anytime that you have questions about your media, just do some runoff tests as well. Take a look at what your, uh, what, you know, it, it, take one amount of sample, um, and charge it just with zero, uh, zero EC 
and probably even a, just a, a basic, uh, or excuse me, a, a neutral uh, pH or your feed pH and do some runoff tests on that. So start collecting the very beginning of the runoff and see what it comes out as. Uh, it might give you an idea of how much, well, you know, if you need to start washing that media a little bit, if you need to let it settle before you go into planting. So look at that, uh, that you see of the runoff and the pH of the runoff. And uh, from manufacturer to manufacturer, it always surprises me some of the differences I see in that. Oh, absolutely. And then also, you know, be aware that like, just, just like the difference between rock wool and cocoa, um, with something like ProMix, you are going to have a small amount of cation exchange capacity. So basically that media will actually hold some of the salts that you're putting in. So if you're looking at any kind of irrigation tech or information out there, really probably align your goals with what someone just growing in cocoa would do. Great tips, you guys. Thank you so much for that, Mike. Good luck out there. All right, Samuel dropped a question over on YouTube. They want to know how much dry pack, dry back in straight can of cocoa, five gallon plastic pots. It looks like they're looking for a little dry back range guidance. What do y'all recommend? So, uh, you know, in a, in a five gallon, if it's 45% um, field capacity, we've got, say, I'm going to just rough this out for easy math, you know, 2.5 gallons of, of water available in there. Um, a big, healthy cannabis plant. And when I say big, I'm talking about uh, as far as indoor production goes, you know, looking at a four to six and a half foot tall, um, healthy cannabis plant. Usually you're looking around, you know, three quarters of a gallon of, of transpiration in a day. Uh, and so uh, as far as drybacks go, um, you know, 0.75 of 2.5, what are you looking at? Um, a quarter? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing to look at there is unless you've got an excessively sized plant, um, you're not going to be able to steer it vegetatively very well at all. And that, and that's kind of why we, you know, not just us, but many cannabis cultivators out there have settled on a smaller pot size because it actually does give us the ability to water the plant every day, which uh, helps us keep that root zone fresh, well oxygenated and avoid any root rot issues. And then the other reason um, is because we can go ahead and bulk it. So if you're in a five gallon pot and you're running indoor sized plants, typically what you're going to see is you're going to run, you know, a small watering once a day, or you might be watering every other day earlier on and progressing to maybe once a day later in the run, but you're going to be growing a smaller plant for your pot size compared to the fact that you could probably grow the same size plant, a four to six and a half foot tall in a one to two gallon cocoa. But uh, inadvertently, you're going to be pushing shorter internode spacing pretty sizable nugs, hopefully, and really, really good quality. So it depends on what your goals are. You know, that's part of why for many, many years, a good old three to five gallon pot hand watered once a day or once or every other day brought people in their garages. Great, great results. If, you know, if you're seeing, if, if you're seeing a daily dryback of say 5% in a five gallon pot, you've probably got some pretty active plants. Cool. Yeah. Samuel, thank you for the question and keep us posted. Good luck out there. All right. Going to keep it moving. We got this question on YouTube a couple of weeks back from Noise Field. They posted, if runoff pH does drop below 5.6, what's the best way to reset the pot and bring pH back up? I usually dilute feed and increase shot sizes and runoff amounts, but results vary. Most of the time, correcting the pH for a day uh, most of the time correcting the pH for a day or before dropping again. What do you guys think? So I'd, I'd look into the root of the issue um, because simply if, you know, yes, you can do a correction. Uh, it sounds like you're doing a, a correction in the right manner, but if that's not holding and you've encountered this many a times, there's something else going on there. And it's probably just coming down to a nutrient imbalance um, or the properties in that substrate that are causing that pH to, to drop. So uh, if you are analyzing your feed EC, we talked about that kind of in the first question today. If you have enough nutrients um, and you are still seeing uh, pH swings that are, are significant, like you're talking about, then uh, go get a leaf tissue analysis. Uh, start to see, you know, what, what, um, ions, what characteristics of that nutrient is the plant feeding heavier on and which ones aren't it? If you're not feeding enough nutrients in the first place, just up your nutrients. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, the best place to start here. A tissue analysis is going to tell you a lot. 
Um, the first place I would personally start with this, you know, it sounded like you're running a, a diluted feed to correct your pH. <clears throat> An important thing to recognize with this problem is that the plant's taking up one type of ion and leaving another. So in order to reset that balance, we need a total amount of incoming ions to not only replace the ones that have been pulled out, but also help push out the excess ones we don't want. So if you're backing off on your feed, that actual feed or, you know, for lack of a better word, flush, is uh, it's not going to have a lasting effect on your pH change because you haven't introduced enough ions into that solution to reset the balance. So a lot of times what we're looking at is feeding, you know, sometimes higher than what you have been at, but potentially bigger feeds and trying to just push and reset that ionic balance. Um, given adequate EC levels and proper pH, we don't typically see uh, deficiencies in a plant. So make sure all your bases are covered. And then really, like I said, look at the problem as like, hey, low pH is a depletion of one type of ion in the media. And we're not going to reset that without putting that negative charge back into it. Awesome, you guys. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I remember a few episodes, we had a lot of pH questions. So got a few of those left today. But yeah, appreciate that question. All right, Daniel just posted here in the chat. Daniel, I'm gonna read this. And if you want to add to it, feel free to unmute yourself. I feel like I have seen more and more grows running what looks like a four inch Rockwell cube on top of a two gallon bag of cocoa. Doesn't the difference in CEC and field capacity between the two cause issues? I messaged one grower who told me he does this because of faster veg and rock wool and better flower quality with cocoa. The second part of that reasoning just doesn't sit well with me. Plenty of good quality flour comes from rock wool. What do you guys think? Um, it's actually a really pretty good option. I, you know, in ideal situations, I do like to try and stick with one media type in the beginning of the plant life cycle through flower and harvest. Um, that being said, you know, four inch rock cubes are very well known for their ability to, uh, be well controlled in the, the veg cycle. Um, a lot of times, you know, when we have a smaller media, we can cut down the veg times and have a more vigorous plant, uh, coming out of our 18, six cycle. Um, and on top of a, a two gallon bag, nice forgiving media for flower. Uh, we can push a two gallon, uh, down, get, woo two gallon bag pretty hard, uh, through the flower cycle. Uh, and, and so one of the things to think about there is yes. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, staying with one type is nice. Um, because of differences in, uh, CEC really for me, it's just the hydraulic conductivity difference between the, the rock wool and the cocoa. And the fact that we just have, you know, a single little boundary layer typically where the, the plastic wrap on the um, rock wool ends. So the bottom of it, the, the thing being though, is if we do have nice explosive, explosive root growth out of that four by, uh, four by three or four by four rock wool cube, uh, it's going to penetrate our two gallon cocoa bag fairly quickly. Right. And so we're thinking about a rooting in time of usually five days, six days. And, uh, what that means is by that time, this plant is already adjusted and it's almost its entire existence of pulling nutrients is going to be from that two gallon bag. So really for me, the only, um, you know, concern or challenge of having that mixed media. Um, and actually in this case, it's probably the, my favorite sizes of medias. Um, so even better, but, uh, my, my biggest challenge there is thinking about how do we make sure that that rooting in process is going to be as effective as possible. Um, and you know, another thing to kind of think about there is, um, once these plants have rooted into the two gallon cocoa, there's not a lot of ends and hairs of those roots that are pulling water from that four by cube. Uh, it's mostly just starting to get enveloped with root crown. And so, you know, usually by say day seven, we're, we're really just thinking about that plant as being in a two gallon cocoa bag. Yeah. I mean, you brought up an important point that I think, uh, I don't know if we've talked about much on here, we could expand on it, expand on it a little bit when we're talking, you know, most, uh, perennial plants like cannabis, annual plants, sorry, like cannabis, we're having root growth expand every year, freshly. We're not regrowing that all of that water absorption is happening, you know, within the last couple inches to the tip of the root, only where the root hairs form. So to Jason's point, yes, exactly. Like all of our water absorption is actually happening primarily down in that suspended water table. Um, that's where the highest water concentration is. And that's where the roots are most adapted to doing that. Uh, basically that is, you know, to me, I, again, I agree with Jason. I don't love mixing rock wool and cocoa, but it's not the worst. As long as you look at what factors you have at play 
and uh, the situation you're in. So part of that comes down to uh, matching up what kind of Rockwell block are you going to use versus what kind of cocoa. Is your cocoa hitting 45% VWC at field capacity or is it hitting 65? That's going to dictate what kind, you know, what type of Rockwell I might choose. I might go with something like a Pargrow if I'm trying to grow in really low VWC media. If I've got something higher, like uh, several companies out there right now that hit easily 60 to 70% field capacity on their straight cocoa. Well, fortunately, that's right in the same range as what I typically see with my rock wool, especially after I've got a plant rooted into it. And then, you know, that's that is one of the dangers, right? If we have a rock wool that will hold a lot of water and will attempt to like wick water out of the cocoa, that can be overcome though with a kind of a simple physics uh, act. And that's called just setting your plant on top of the bag or on top of the block and resisting that uh, old school urge to dig a little hole and bury that block either all the way or partly in the soil, even, or in the cocoa, actually even submerging that four by four by about half an inch or an inch. What it does is once the cocoa is around that plastic wrap, it's sealed up, no air can go under there. And basically you've got a straw now. <laughs> the rock wall, once that plastic edge is sealed up, can actually suck water back up. And then we don't see good rooting in because we're not pushing water in the right direction through those roots and they're not getting enough oxygen. So that is, I think, one of the biggest things is when you are mixing medias, try to match up, you know, that field capacity as best you can because you're never going to get that matrix potential to be exactly the same. And then remember that water goes down and we want to do everything we can to keep it from going back up. Thank you guys for that answer. That was a really good question. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly I'm managing a very sad plant right now that I did not root in properly, you guys. So, but I'm taking notes for next year. I'll get it right next year. All right. We got a question here. Uh, let's see. So many questions. Yes, Daniel, thank you so much for your question. All right. We got a question here from Alpine Agronomy. They wrote in. How many plants per 16 square feet do you suggest with a one gallon pot? I had better results with two gallon at nine plants per four by four square than I did with a six with 16 one gallon pots per four by four square. What do you guys think? Typically nine to 12 plants, depending on pot sizes, right? Where we find uh, about the best mix of um, productivity, quality, because obviously the more packed in your plants are the uh, more your lower and inner canopy buds are going to suffer. And then also there's a, a labor turnover, right? Where if it is too intergrown and too thick, uh, it actually takes way, way longer to go in there and deleaf and defoliate and get any kind of plant work done. Uh, so, so what I've seen from growers going from 16 alite on most strains, if they go back to 12, a lot of times, especially if they start flipping them, you know, really dial in that plant height, they see you know, either equivalent or slightly increased yields just from that change alone, but also a better ratio of that A to B nug, just because we're getting better light penetration and a more uniform and dense overall nug structure. Yeah, really just kind of comes down to canopy density. And I mean, that's some of that's going to have to do with uh, lighting intensity, um, your point sources of light and um, type of strain, how it grows. Absolutely. And that's something to remember, guys, that with cannabis genetics, there's enough variation. I mean, growing under HPS, I've seen strains that I can pack them in at 16 a light and they do just fine. Some of them do horrible. Uh, some strains I'll de-leaf, you know, pretty hard on that lollipop. Other strains I've grown over the years, uh, I, I get kind of lazy on the defoliation. And luckily, I still end up with some decent golf balls down in that lower canopy. So uh, always remember. Everything we say is, uh, this is the answer, except in some of these certain situations. So really, you know, crop registration and keeping track of all your variables and then being able to analyze, like, was it the pot size or the plant density that seemed to have the bigger impact on this particular run is kind of the key to dissecting that for different strains over time. Hot size matters. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. All right. I got a question here on YouTube from John. They wrote struggling with keeping temps down in week five to six of flower 
averaging about 81 during lights on and only down to 76 at night. Can this result in thinner buds than what's normally desired? Uh, possibly. Uh, you know, some of the things that might be able to help you is just start, you know, keep, keep, keep your irrigations leaned slightly more generative if you can't do, uh, you know, um, some, some ripening aspects to that, um, that plant. And, you know, obviously start to think about what, uh, what AC capacities that, that, uh, might help you improve those environments. Yeah. You know, and a, a part of it too, is as your temperature increases, always keep your VPD in mind. So our plant response to drought, drought is, you know, low water, which we should never hit in a controlled irrigation environment and also high, high heat and high leaf surface temps. So as your temperature goes up, we want to get that humidity up to keep that VPD in range and keep that, you know, millimeter or two around the leaf surface inside of a range where those stomata stay open and don't go into a drought response. A lot of times when we see like foxtailing, for instance, a big part of it is that that humidity has dropped and that immediate area around the leaf surface now is super dry. So the stomata have closed up and, you know, there's two things going on. The, the, well, not two things. One, the eventual, the eventuality is a thinner bud structure because the plant can't keep itself cool. So it can't pack on as much material in a small area. And that's being caused by those stomata being restricted and the plant not being able to actually grow as uh, productively. So if we have, you know, classic really overblown weed that's not doing very good we we will see you know small sometimes really tight nugs sometimes really loose but if you're running high temps make sure you're keeping up with your humidity and also maybe now you know where your next investment needs to be on your grow space which is sounds like ac all right john let us know how that works for you. Thank you for your question. Just rounding out the hour, y'all. So if you have any questions, you're on with us live, be sure to drop it in the chat. We'll do our best to get to them. We got a question in, um, someone wrote, in Rockwell, is there any benefit in feeding a kelp-based product? We admitted the name of this product, but they claim it will not clog drip emitters, which I find hard to believe. Any feedback would be much appreciated. Kelp-based products. Y'all used anything like that? I've played with them a little bit. Typically what we're looking at is like a little hormone booster for the plants. Um, is there validity to it? Slight. There's some scientific evidence to show that different compounds in kelp extracts can be very good, beneficial for plant growth. Um, if you want to implement them, I would, it says it won't clog, clog drippers. I would really look at what that looks like. Does it come out in a clear liquid with <laughs> the viscosity of water? Um, but, you know, if you're really looking at putting something like that on, maybe look at what the application instructions are and say, okay, is this something that I'm adding every day? Is it something I'm supposed to add once a week, every fifth day? What's the program I'm supposed to be on? And if you really want to try it or maybe look at hand supplementing it throughout the room and then, you know, log some of the morphology changes you might see in the plant. But really, when it comes to the supplements, <coughs> excuse me. We want to eliminate variables as much as possible so you know if that's what actually made the difference. Yeah, and the suggestion that I would have is definitely try uh, hand applying it first because then if you don't see a benefit, it's uh, you know no cost to stop using it. Whereas if you use it in your lines and it does clog your systems, you're, you're going to be out some investment. I mean, flashbacks, about, flashbacks to compost teas, Jason. <laughs> I like, I like hand applying compost teas. Yeah. Just don't ever let anyone brew them in your res. <laughs> I'll brew them in your res. <laughs> Please don't. We have someone on hangouts here that had a question. Yeah. EG, did you have a question? Not sure if they're still here, but you're welcome to type your question in the chat. We can, we can talk about it. Um, oh, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, there you are. Hey there. Um, yeah, I just wanted to get your guys' opinion um, about uh, surface leaf temperature, uh, temperatures. And um, we're running a CO2 around 1,400 and got about 1,000 to 1,100 par on, on, the, on the plants. And uh, um, just wanted to understand what your take was on the relationship of the environment and the surface leaf temperatures, where they should be. Um, uh, what the differentiation should be uh, between those two temperatures. 
tell you know really what's going to come down between environmental temperature and, and leaf surface temp is one how much airflow is going on uh, you know as these plants are transpiring the evaporative cooling of the water vapor coming off the surface of the plant is usually going to keep them um, slightly lower than air temps uh, and that is obviously depending on how much airflow you have so if we are reducing how much boundary layer effect that the humidity and the transpiration um, evaporation of that water right at the leaf surface occurs uh, a lot of times you're going to see that a little bit less and you actually you kind of want that because it's going to be easier to manage the whole canopy uh, if we can start to break up some of those boundary layer environments those micro environments around the leaf surface and then the other was that um, that radiation that we talked about earlier, where some of the the far reds, um, those higher wavelength um, photons, are actually you know increasing the surface temperature of the leaf. And I can expand on that a little bit. You know, typically early on, you know, in veg and early flower, we want to see a leaf an average leaf surface temp. I always want to stress average because just like Jason said, if you take a thermometer and go take a thousand readings you're going to have a thousand slightly different answers. And we're looking for an average trend line that we can actually act on, but we're looking for about 80 to 82 degrees Fahrenheit leaf surface temp early on dropping that to about, you know, 75 to 78 during bulking, whatever you can kind of manage. And then, you know, during bulking, we're going to start to do a, about a five degree overnight differential that will expand to a 10 degree. And, you know, this is something I've kind of, I don't think we brought up on here, but that is one of the reasons we see, uh, you know, or a lot of people will typically say they see, you know, better results in terms of color and maturation with an HPS uh, as part of part of that is that leaf surface temp differential. So with an HPS, if we're running 75 degrees in the daytime and you're hitting it with that radiant heat from the light, you know, your leaf surface temp might be more like 78, 79, 80, depending on how much airflow you have and how close that leaf is to the light. Well, once the lights go off, we're our plants slowly, slowly moving back towards ambient room temp. And if that ambient room temp went from 75 to 65, now we've got a 15 degree differential or 12 or 13 on that HPS plant versus, you know, if we were running at 77 in the daytime and our leaf surface was 73 on that LED plant. Now, if we drop that temp, that nighttime temp to 65 in the room, now the plants only got a seven degree diff or eight degree diff rather than a 10 to 15 degree diff. So really, you know, everything we do, and I think we've talked about this a little bit on here is uh, really catering to that few millimeters around the leaf, that leaf surface temperature and leaf surface VPD are really what we're catering our entire environment to. Yeah, I've, uh, typically I've, I, when I measure my leaf surface temperature, I'm, I'm, I'm getting lower than my ambient temperature um and then of course when i get into a higher temperature like if i'm running 80 i'm, I'm maybe uh, getting 76 on the leaf surface and then um you know but as i get into 82 degrees uh then uh the differential be it, it becomes almost nil um and you know at that point i start backing off i, I feel like i should be backing off but um i don't know um there should there should should there be a reduction or not in the leaf temperature uh, as opposed to the ambient temperature? Typically I see it um, in healthy plants and, and kind, of, kind of what you said about when you get up to 82 in your room, I would guess that the transpiration rate of those plants is decreasing and that's why you're seeing that leaf surface temperature catch up with the ambient temperature. Uh, so I think you're doing the right thing by backing off and not pushing quite that hard. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks so much for that. EG, thanks for the question. I don't think we've seen you before, so nice to have you on the show. Oh, right on. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Bye. All right, yeah. Um, moving on to YouTube. Questions keep on coming. Tyler dropped a comment. They wrote two weeks veg, eight-week flower, prune week three, leaving 12 to 18 inches per cola, defoliate five to 10 leaves covering bud sites week four, final defoliation strip week seven, Sufficient plant maintenance regimen? What do you guys think? How does it sound to you? To me, it sounds like it might be slightly uh, excessive. Um, they might be able to get away with putting just a little bit less labor into that. Uh, however, it's nice to hear it scheduled out like a, like a good SOP. Um, 
I, I personally probably lean on the, the side of the little bit lazier type of uh, defoliation um, just because it's, uh, you know, there's other ways to help manage plant growth as well that, that are, are a little bit less labor intensive. That being said, yeah, you know, it's hard to argue that um, a proper amount of defoliation is key for the quality of bud that you're growing. Yeah. And you know, there, there's, I guess a, a few different ways to go about it. Like everyone says there's a, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. Um, to defoliate the plant? To defoliate, there's a thousand different ways you could do it. doesn't mean they're all right though. That's where I was going with that. Um, but yeah, usually going, uh, Jason said, uh, typically a little more conservatively, um, setting your plant structure early on. So sometimes when I hear that people don't do anything until week three, sometimes you can set yourself up for a little better success, especially if you've grown these same strains several times and you're used to how they, the kind of structure they tend to form. Um, you can get away with like a day one or two kind of lollipop up or right before you bring them in. And then you can kind of save some, save some labor on that end of stretch defoliation. Um, typically I like to do coming out of veg end of week three or whenever the end of stretch is done. And I'll do one more cleanup typically. Yeah. Around week seven and in there be good. you know, if you, if you start ripping leaves too close to harvest, you're going to start encouraging mold just because you've got wounded plants going into your dry room. So that's something you want to look out for. And then if you are in that case where you feel like you need to strip every single leaf from the plant to be able to dry your weed, um, you, you might need to upgrade your dry room. Ideally, we want to have, you know, a healthy plant going in. And then the other thing too, always it's a balance when you're defoliating, you know, those leaves are the reason we talk about leaf surface temp and not bud temp is the leaves are what are actually transpiring and photosynthesizing. So overstripping those overstripping your plants uh, is going to diminish the yield probably more than uh, improper irrigation technique plus of course you kill the plant but you can do that either way too great tips thank you so much tyler appreciate your your post there thank you for sharing your data good luck all right, returning back to some previously submitted questions. Hey, ooh, wrote in about pH. If you are seeing lower, if you are seeing lower of the acceptable pH range, say 5.4 into 5.3, is it normal practice to increase your pH feeds to say 6.0 to 6.1, knowing that the medium will be lowering the pH soon, or would there be a different approach? Uh, this is pretty similar to what uh, I think one of our first questions in this episode was, and that is just, you know, what are the appropriate steps for correcting uh, a pH that's slightly off? Uh, you know, my first question is, is what do our EC charts look like? Uh, you know, if, if, if we really can't make an, a good decision until we understand whether there's enough nutrients in there to keep... Um, keep that composition, that nutrient composition balanced. Um, obviously if there's not enough nutrients, there's really nothing else that we can do. That's going to end up in a, uh, even really just a short term, I mean, solution, obviously you're always going to have long-term issues. Um, and obviously, a a, a really short-term correction, uh, you know, of modifying a, a pH, even if your EC is too low, it's going to be a very short term, uh, change, probably not even a solution. Uh, as guess kind of what I was getting at there. Um, so, you know, understanding those EC values, are they high enough to sustain a balanced nutrition for that plant? Um, you know, at, if you're in Rockwell, five, three to five, four, I probably wouldn't be too aggressive at making very many changes. Um, I would just kind of keep it in mind and continue to, uh, take pH runoff readings. If you're in cocoa, it's, it's probably about the time to start, start thinking about what might be causing that. Yeah. Without those EC readings, it's really tough to say. And one, one really important thing to remember when we're looking at these pH swings is as non-intuitive as it seems, the bigger salt load you have, um, if you've got 10, and this is outrageous, right? Obviously, but if we had 10,000 PPM of salt in solution and the plant took out 1500, that's much less impactful than if we had 3000 PPM of total salt in solution and we removed 1500 of it, that's going to have a much bigger effect on that that pH in the nutrient solution than it would, uh, at a higher EC. So although it seems non-intuitive to feed more and more aggressively with more nutrients, if you're at a high EC, we want to look back over time and say, okay, more than likely, what, what are we looking at? Was it a bad input? Do we have an imbalance because of what the plant's eating? Let's say we've been stacking too much and not pushing runoff appropriately. So we've just slowly edged that pH down over time, or is it a sudden change? Is it a problem with our input? So you really want to identify 
just like Jason said, what, what is really causing it? And that's going to, you know, lead you to the appropriate steps to fix it. So step one, if you don't already have it, I would find a way to monitor that root zone EC, um, with something like the T12, uh, water content is really awesome, but the ability to see that EC in time series with a reasonable amount of accuracy is, is huge. And it's, um, I guess we don't always try to sell a ROI, but we've been doing it a lot on this episode, but not a lot of sensors. I, I get those questions all the time. Does the, how high does this sensor read? Well, up to 30, we, we shouldn't see anything going above 30 in a healthy plant growing system. So you can really make a lot of good choices once you have the numbers. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, um, kind of the way I like to think about it is I would rather be slightly overfeeding than slightly underfeeding. Uh, when we think about uh, available nutrients, the plant has some ability to regulate its nutrient uptake. And so if there are, um, you know, elements of each kind that the plant is pulling up macro and mic micro, um, nutrition, then if we have just slightly too much that that plant's going to regulate how much uptakes and it's going to stay balanced. Uh, yet on the other end, if we're slightly underfeeding, uh, it's going to become, it's going to become unbalanced simply because it's using up all available of certain elements. Yeah. You know, I guess a good way I like to put it is, I don't know, a decade ago when I started looking into growing in my own closet and stuff and found out about growing in cocoa core versus peat moss, which is something I was familiar with from other industries. One of the early texts I read was to uh, mix up your nutrient solution, a five gallon bucket. If you've got one gallon pots, go dunk them till they stop bubbling, hold them up and let it drain out. And the idea was we're resetting the EC in that medium to 3.0 every day. So we're having full control over resetting what the pH is going to be, what the EC is going to be and making sure that's exactly where we want it. Now that's like, that's about as low tech as you can get in monitoring or in managing EC and pH inside your root zone. It's, it's blunt force and it works, but it's also incredibly expensive and you obviously couldn't afford to just flush your entire room of plants to exactly what you want your root zone EC to be every day. Your water usage would be just completely not economical. Yeah. And, you know, kind of building up the, um, the knowledge behind how to avoid this in the future is going to be one of the key things that helps you crop steer in the long run. Cause so many of these methods that we're using to uh, combat an effect is a, a reactive type of um, process. And it's really hard to be crop steering when we have too many reactive uh, treatments going on throughout a cycle. Yeah. And actually if you, <laughs> I'll be a salesman again, if we go back to our other question before Raya Roya time series data for your entire run. When you can look back, I mean, that's something I help people with pretty frequently is going, okay, you know, we've got this pH situation. How do we make a decision? Okay. You haven't been able to stack your EC above a 4.0 and now we're in week six. So we've been at a point where the plant's been riding on the ragged edge of having enough nutrition. And now we just hit the point in plant growth where the plant's taking out either more than we can put in, or it's taking out so much that we can't really reset that ionic balance without doing some sort of incredibly massive feed that might, you know, end up actually shocking the plant. Fantastic, you guys. Thank you so much for that overview. All right, we got a comment here from Spaceship Tech. Welcome to the show, Spaceship. I don't think we've met you before. And uh, we're, they wrote, this is a good one, probably gonna close off, uh, close out on this one. They wrote, when in ripening phase, my input EC is 1.5. What are some, if any, target substrate EC ranges for my final watering? What advice y'all have there? It depends on what you're, what you built up to, uh, throughout that run, you know, as a, as you're building up, EC in the root zone, that plant's adapting. Uh, we have the ability to change that osmotic balance, the amount of salt that's on one side of that osmotic balance anyway, really quickly by pumping too much water through there and really lowering the amount of salt or massively raising it up. If we happen to feed it way too high of an EC. So when you're riding out, you know, your last week's of ripening really targeting when those plants stop feeding to try to figure out when you want to taper off your EC. I mean, that's part of why um, we look at, you know, certain nutrient programs that'll say, Hey, run a 3.0 all the way through. Well, part of that is because if your plan is actually ripening on its own determinate timeline, it will eventually slow down and mostly stop feeding. And at that point, most of what you're pumping into it is going down the drain, right? But what we want to do is keep that EC from either spiking up too high, you know, massively over drying it or dropping out. If you're at a seven baseline and you drop to zero, the plant can't adapt 
quickly enough to uh, continue to uptake water and nutrients and you're going to cause some root death. So I wish it was a simpler answer, answer, but if you've been in a, a five to 10 range, start trying to keep it in that range and maybe slowly bring it down over two weeks. But, you know, don't try to step it down more than a half a point in EC a day, typically. Yeah. And just to try and put some concrete numbers, I'm just going to work off of Seth's um, five to 10 through vegetative bulking. Uh, if you cut that EC to one five, you're probably going to see uh, root zone ECs between three and 15 um, or two and 20, depending on how aggressive your generative steering is during ripening. Yep. And that's, you know, one thing we uh, really try to focus on in ripening is how big is that EC swing getting? And, uh, you know, just as Jason said, we, we can react to it, but the real value is looking at, okay, here's my buildup over time. What happens if it's too quick? What happens if it's too slow? What happens if I'm not pushing appropriate runoff? How is that affecting how I'm coming into ripening? Amazing, you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you to everybody who submitted questions. We had so many good conversations today. We really love hearing from y'all. So appreciate that. Um, Seth and Jason, rocking it as usual. Good to see you guys. Thank you for this session to producer Chris. Thank you. All right. If you're looking for some Arroyo gear, don't forget Arroyo.shop is now open for business. Head over there to get you some merch. Thank you everybody for joining us for this week's episode of Arroyo Office Hours. We do this every Thursday and the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. If you want to learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at Arroyo.io and one of our experts will be happy to walk you through all the ways it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover on Office Hours, post questions any time in the Arroyo uh, app, drop your questions in the chat or on our YouTube, send us an email to sales at arroyo.io, note that new address, sales at arroyo.io or DMS. We are on all the socials. We want to hear from you. We'll send everyone in attendance a link to today's video. It'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share while you're there, and we'll see you at the next session. Thanks, everybody. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software, repeat successful runs, and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.